Lord Jesus, I pray that both of those any refrains are true for us in that song. May there truly be room in our hearts for you, Jesus. And may as you fill up that room, Lord, may there truly be a full recognition of what it means to have Christ in us. May you truly understand the joy that comes with that and the life change that takes place. And Lord, through that, as you come into our hearts, may we live, may we look, may we serve more like you each and every day. So we open now to the Gospel of Mark. Lord, I pray that you'll speak to our hearts once again. In your name we pray. Amen. We're in Mark chapter 9 today. Mark chapter 9. And we're going to be beginning in verse 33. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to open up the Bible. It's in the Pew Bible as well. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 33. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but any version will do. Mark chapter 9 beginning in verse 33. And they came, this is Jesus and the disciples that is being spoken of here, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. In the context of this chapter, the discussion that the disciples were having shows a, a great lack of, of awareness. Early in Mar, earlier in Mark chapter 9, we read the story of the Mount of Transfiguration, this, 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 this powerful story in which Jesus went up on a mountain and, and took three of his disciples with him, uh, a couple of his disciples with him, and, and, and God's voice actually spoke from the cloud, this is my beloved son, Listen to him. Then they came down off the mountain where the other disciples were in a bit of a pickle. They were, they were having a tough moment. They were, they were struggling with something. There was a boy that was, was demon-possessed, and his dad said, I brought him to your, to your followers and to your disciples, and I asked them to, to, to heal my boy, and, and they could do nothing. They could do nothing. And Jesus then tells the Father, if you believe, anything is possible. And the Father says one of those great verses in Scripture, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And Jesus casts out the demon out of the child. It's a unique conversation to be having after those two moments. Who is the greatest? It also shows some dullness, some, some lack of consideration on their part in that following the transfiguration and following the healing of the demon-possessed boy, Jesus then tells his disciples, right before as they're walking along to Capernaum, Jesus then tells his disciples, I am going to die. They don't understand what he's saying. They don't understand what he's saying, so they actually just push it aside and don't ask him, for they're, they're fearful of what this means. And the, the conversation that they move on to is not concern for their master. It's not, it's not awe of his greatness and his splendor. The conversation they move on to is a discussion about not who would actually be the greatest, but if we read it, who is the greatest. This is a discussion they know, by the way, is a discussion that Jesus would be 
disappointed in them having. We see this because the Bible tells us in chapter 9 and verse 33, it says, And they came to Capernaum, and when they, he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? Verse 34, But they kept silent, for on the way they were discussing who was the greatest amongst them. They kept silent. Their silence betrays their knowledge that Jesus would not approve of such a question. If you've been a parent, you've had those moments when you've said to your kids, what are you saying? And there's no answer. And then you know something that was said that shouldn't be said. It's like this parental intuition, you know, you don't even, you don't even sometimes know actually what was said, but they give themselves away with that silence. And we see that here with, with, with Jesus. He asked them, I'm sure he had a further insight to what they were discussing, but he asked them and, and their silent fully betrays them that they, they know they shouldn't have been having this conversation. We oftentimes, like the disciples, know deep down in our hearts, we, we know deep in our hearts when we are talking about something, when we are thinking about something, when we are doing something, when we are acting in some way that Jesus wouldn't be okay with. The disciples show us that they understand this in that moment. Verse 35 then tells us that Jesus then, then does something. The disciples were silent, but Jesus knew what they were talking about. And so, so the, verse 35 tells us, and he sat down and called the 12 to himself. He sat down and called the 12 to himself. We don't want to miss that, that moment, folks. Jesus sat down may mean nothing to us. The fact that he was sitting down may mean nothing to us. But Mark places this in this in the text to illustrate Jesus' authority, his, his power, his, his, his right as their teacher to teach them, to, to instruct them. This is underscored by the phrase, and he called the 12 to themselves. The 12 were already with them. They were in a house there, and, and, and the 12 were already there, and yet Mark is conveying this idea that, that he is the greatest. He is the instructor. He is the teacher. And he sits down and he calls them to himself. To teach them, to guide them. It's almost as if Jesus is, is, is slowing things down in this moment. And in fact, Mark, in a way, slows things down as well. Because the rest of chapter 9 is related to this topic of who is the greatest. We've gone through the transfiguration and, and a demon boy healed. And, and, and Jesus telling them that he's going to die. And, and rapidly through the first 30-some verses of, of Mark chapter 9, and then over the next 20-plus verses, Jesus sits down and instructs the disciples. He slows down, and he teaches the disciples. Verse 35, and he sat down, and he called the disciples, the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If anyone must be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. When I was a kid, I listened to this blue singing songbook called Salty. Anyone ever heard of Salty? Had the Salty singing songbooks? You know, uh, some of those things are funny to think about now because I completely left all things of God, and yet there were some of those things that I listened to as a kid that just stuck in my brain. And one of those songs is. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, anyone know that song? Learn to be a servant of all. The Blue Songbook sang it much better than I did. I'm very familiar with it. Again, I still love it. I sing it out full gusto when I'm listening to it now with my, with my boys. I put on the salty 
uh, tapes and things in my car. But the idea, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. The society of the disciples was no different than our modern society. Being first means having a title, having power, having authority. Those who are last were the least of these. They were just discussing, who is the greatest amongst us? Who do you think is probably the best? Who do you think really is, is, is the most powerful? Who do you think really probably has the ear of Jesus? They were just discussing this, and now Jesus tells them that if you really want to be great, you have to be last. It's not about titles. It's not about power. It's not about authority. It's not about, about even greatness. It's about being, putting others before yourself. Those who are last are servants in their society just like now. To be first, put yourself last. To be great, be a servant. And by the way, if you're putting yourself last just so for the sake that you can be first, or if you're being a servant just so that you can be considered great, God knows what's going on in our heart. You know, we've tried to instruct our our children in this idea, and I've seen it on occasion in which one of my sons will intentionally go to be last and then point out about how they're being last, so really they're being super awesome. You know what I'm saying? So, so they're, 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 uh, they're, they're not quite understanding the concept yet. But we even as adults do this. Sometimes we've, we feign humility in things or we, or we, 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 we act like really we're, we're differential to a situation when really in our core we're not. Jesus knows our hearts. What Jesus is talking about here is the heart aspect of things that, that really in our hearts we should consider others better than ourselves. That really in our hearts we should have this desire to, to serve people, not so that we can be great, but simply because we want to serve people. Jesus then illustrates this point. There must have been a child somewhere in the room there. Jesus illustrates this point because he grabs a child that must have been in the house. And the Bible says in verse 36 that he took the child and he, in the midst of them, put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms. Jesus was great about acting out the points that he wanted to make, illustrating with, with visuals the points that he wanted to make. And, and so he embraces this child. Children didn't rule the roost, so to speak, as they do oftentimes now in, in many homes. You know, when I talk to uh, teachers at school sometimes, they say that have been teaching for a long time, they say it's so different. It, back, in, back in the the old, the old days when we first started teaching, when when, when I called a parent to instruct them that, that their kid had gotten in trouble, then the kid would be in trouble at home. Now when I call to instruct a parent that their kid got in trouble, I get yelled at for getting their kid in trouble. It's, it's not quite the same as, as it is now in, in, in many homes. But, but, in, but in that time, children were not held in high regard in antiquity. In fact, there was, uh, there was the thought that as I read through the commentaries, that listening to children talk was thought to be a waste of time and one should not participate in it. Not only that, but for these men that spoke Aramaic, there was also another trigger there. You know, the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. The, the language of the temple was Hebrew, but the language that the commoners spoke, including Jesus, probably most likely spoke 
was the language of Aramaic. And so in their common language, if, if Jesus drew in this child and he said, you must be like a child, the word in Aramaic for child is the same word for servant. So he's drawing this child in and he's saying, look at this little one. And he wraps his arms, he embraces the child. And embracing the child, Jesus is acting out a parable on what it means to be great. He's, he's, he's identifying himself with that child, he's showing the value of this child, of this person in society that is considered nothing, not even worth listening to. To listen to a child is a waste of time, not worth it, not something that they should do as adults. And yet here Jesus is embracing this child. The disciples, though, they may sometimes forget. In their core, in their being, they recognize the greatness of Jesus. So when he calls them around, come around to teach them, and they begin to listen, and now the greatest amongst them is embracing a child, wrapping his arms around a servant, around the least of these. This is Jesus telling the disciples to serve and accept this child. This is not just Jesus telling the, the disciples to serve and accept this child. Jesus, in this embrace, is personally identifying himself with the child. Verse 36, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives, receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives, whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus, when he embraces this child, not only is he telling them to serve this child, to care for this child, but he's saying, I am like this child. In other words, I am the least of these. Though I am the creator, though I am the living word, though I am the bread of life, I'm willing to be humbled to be a servant for you. Then Mark jumps to what a casual reading may uh, seems to be a completely different story. Mark then jumps to what may seem to be a completely different story, but it is in direct relation to this question of who is the greatest. Verse 38. He ends, the, he ends the story with the child, and then he jumps to something else. And we could read it almost as a, second, a separate section, but, but it is connected to the question that the disciples were having of who amongst us is, is the greatest. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. We tried to stop him because he is not following us. Can we pause here and acknowledge the danger of spiritual arrogance? The great danger of spiritual arrogance. Have we ever heard, have we ever personally discredited the ministry of another group, of another church, of another person, because they don't agree with us on a theological point? You don't have to raise your hands. You can just raise them in your hearts if you want. Have we ever heard any individuals discourage us from learning from those that are outside of our fold? Have we ever heard any individuals discourage us from reading certain books that are outside of our ranks as if God couldn't use the minds of those that are beyond our sphere of comfort? Have we ever heard things like this? Have we ever said things like this? 
Have we ever heard or have we ever discredited the worship of other congregations, chalking it up not to the Holy Spirit, but simply to, to fanaticism or emotionalism due to the fact that the music may not be something that, that we are completely comfortable with or would approve of? Have we ever done this? Have we ever seen this done? Have we ever heard about this? What John says to Jesus here is really no different than any of those illustrations. What John is saying here is we are greater than them because they are not with you. Actually, no, John doesn't even say because they are not with you. John actually says something much worse than that. John says we are greater than them, this, this individual, because this individual is not part of us, part of our crowd, part of our clique. He doesn't, he doesn't associate with us. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. John doesn't say he isn't following you, Jesus. He says he's not part of our crowd. It wasn't the work it wasn't the work this guy did that mattered. It wasn't the work that this guy did that mattered. In fact, there is some irony to this moment. In, in my mind, there's some irony to this moment. John and the disciples are trying to stop a man who cast out demons in the name of Jesus. The people who in chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, who could could themselves not exercise a demon. Just a few verses before, they're wanting to exercise a demon. They couldn't do it. And now there's a man that has the power and the authority in the name of Jesus to cast out a demon, and they're saying, wait a second. He shouldn't be allowed to do this because he's not one of us. We're great because we are who we are. He's not great, so he shouldn't be allowed to do this thing had nothing to do with what was actually being done, had nothing to do actually with the gift that God had given him. When I was in first grade, I had two really close friends, Travis and Stephen. And Travis and I, every day, we were the ones that brought the football to school at Pacific Union uh, College Elementary School there. And so one of us were always the two captains in football. We'd always have one of us be the two captains in football, which meant the other one was getting picked first, and then we would always pick second, Stephen. Now, Stephen actually wasn't uh, the next best athlete. He wasn't the next best choice. He wasn't, uh, uh, skill-wise, he wasn't, wasn't comparable to maybe some of the other students. But Travis and I always picked him next because he was one of us. It didn't matter what he could do or, or couldn't do, but he was one of us. Therefore, he got to be in our, our, our group, our team, our inner circle. It wasn't what this man did that mattered. It was that he was not part of them. So he wasn't picked to be worthy to perform this exercise. Pardon my misuse of the English language, but it's like John is saying, we are greater because us is better than them. Jesus, in verses 39 and 40, says something very powerful to them. Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Hey, John, 
them is us when them are doing the things that we should be doing. That's what Jesus is saying. I use the poor English. Maybe it'll stay in your, in your minds there better. Hey, John. Hey, John. He is part of us because he's doing the things that we should be doing. And Jesus even tells them, and if he's not doing it for the right reasons, I'll take care of it or I'll change them. Verse 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The disciples are having a discussion on the way to Capernaum. Who do you think amongst us is the greatest? Jesus asked them, what were you discussing? They're silent. They're betraying the fact that they know they shouldn't have been having this conversation. Jesus says, if you want to be first, you must be last. If you want to be great, you must be the servant of all. Jesus draws in this child. He embraces this child. And he says, in fact, I am a servant of all. Therefore, you should be like me. I, just as you should serve this child, you should also be like me, who, who identifies with this child the least of these. I came down out of heaven, and now the disciples are having this conversation. Who is the greatest? They're still not getting it. John says, there's this man that's casting out demons in your name. And we stopped him because he's not like us. He doesn't go to the church we go to. He doesn't listen to the music that we listen to. He's, he's read books that we don't think are okay to read. Surely you don't approve of this, Jesus. And Jesus says, if he's not against us, he's for us. And then Jesus tells them, then Jesus tells them, there in verse 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying the smallest deed done for God or for his people is greatness. The smallest deed. It's not even just that this man cast out a demon. Even if he had done something as small as give you a cup of water, John, he would be for us and not against us. John, you may be an apostle. John, you may be a disciple. This man may not have any title. But if he gives you a glass of water because you're connected to me, then he's just as great as you. Think of all the people in the world that are doing amazing things that we turn a blind eye to because they're not doing them quite how we would do them. But think of all the people that are just doing small things on a daily basis in the name of God the best they can. God's saying even that small deed makes them as great as you, is worthy of the same reward and the same praise that you would have. Then in my mind's eye, as I read this text in Mark chapter nine, in my mind's eye, I imagine Jesus getting a little worked up. You know, sometimes you can, especially if you're a preacher, preachers will understand this, you start to go and you get on a tangent, you, you get on a roll and you suddenly become passionate before you know it, you have to pause and say sorry, sorry for preaching at you or, or sorry for getting carried away there. I imagine Jesus is getting a little worked up, his eyes getting a little bigger, his voice raises a little, his passion starts to come on display and in verse 42 he says, in fact brothers, I want to tell you something, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be, if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. 
This is still all connected to this conversation of who amongst us is the greatest. Can you imagine it? What Jesus is trying to teach about greatness actually is trying to teach them humility, to teach about Christ-like servitude, and he realizes that in their pursuit of greatness, in their desire to be first instead of last, they may cause someone else that is serving Jesus in a humble manner like they should serve him to stumble. He realizes them thinking they are great and these others are not so great may cause someone who is serving him to turn away from him. And Jesus says, wait a second, wait a second. It's not just about your greatness. It's not just about you understanding this. You need to recognize that by you and your pride, you could cause someone else to stumble. When he talks about these little ones, if anyone causes one of these little ones to fall away because of me, he's not simply talking about the child. He's talking about those who are doing the little deeds for Jesus. Those who are simply getting the cup of water to give someone a drink in the name of Jesus. He's saying through your pride of position, through your desire to be first, through your desire to have a title, but because of the us versus them mindset, you may be causing one of these to stumble. You may be causing one of these to stumble. It's a warning to those of us in leadership of the potential danger of oppressing those who are called by God of doing things that, 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 that we see as insignificant but may in some way be little moments in which we devalue or we discredit someone who is working for the Lord, causing them to turn away, causing them to doubt their calling from God, causing them to, to, to question if God can really use them. And he warns these leaders, he warns these men, be careful. Be careful. Your question, who is, was the greatest? Your desire for greatness may cause one of these young ones, may cause one of these that, that is seen as the least of these, one of these that's just doing a, a small task to think that they have no value and to fall away. Then Mark relates to us some words from Jesus that, that seem totally out of context with the rest of Mark chapter 9 in regards to this greatness question. Mark chapter 9, verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched i don't want to deny the traditional view of this text which is if something external in your life is causing you to sin get rid of it that's, that's the traditional view that we teach on this text, and I believe that to be true. If something external is causing us to sin, then, then we should get rid of that thing. We should remove ourselves from that situation, from that relationship, from, from, from that activity. I agree with this traditional point of view. 
But in the context of this question of greatness, does it, does it totally fit? Jesus here is speaking in a metaphor. He doesn't literally mean that we should tear out our eye. He doesn't literally mean that we should cut off our foot or our hand. Could the metaphor also be that he is not speaking about anything external at all, but what he is doing is he's addressing that which is, which is internal that causes us to sin. You see, sin comes from within us. I'm not forced to sin by something outside of me. It always comes from something inside of me. You go all the way back to the very first sin, the sin in heaven in which, in which Satan, in which Lucifer sins against God. And if you read in, in, in the Old Testament, we read where, where Satan says over and over again, the book of Isaiah, I will make myself like the most high. I will position myself on the mount of God. I will be above all the clouds. I, 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 it's all from inside. All the external things that Satan has ever done, where do they come from? They come from within. Then Eve in the garden and Adam in the garden. It wasn't just Eve at the tree, folk. It was Adam as well. Read Genesis. We always have the pictures of just Eve there with a the snake. We need to start putting Adam in there because the Bible says, and she gave some to her husband who was with her. He was just silent in the face of sin. But Adam and Eve are there at the tree, and, and, and the Bible tells us that, that, that Eve made this choice to sin. And, and why did she make the choice? Because Satan said to her, you will be like what? God. And then it says, her, seeing that it was pleasing to the eye and good for wisdom, took of the fruit. By the way, it wasn't an apple. I can't believe anybody would sin over an apple. Had to be a mango or something. Then she took the fruit, and she ate of it, and she gave some to her husband that was with her. But what was the driving force? Was it just something external, or was it something inside of her that says, I want to be like God? When my eyes sin, when my hands sin, when my feet sin, it's not because something outside forced me to do it. It's because something inside of me says, I want to be God over myself. The disciple's question was, who do you think is the greatest amongst us? And maybe that thing which they need to cut off, that thing which they need to exercise the most in their lives, that they need to, to be rid of most in their lives, isn't it anything external, but it's this internal pride that is within them. I don't want to say that, that, that remove the traditional viewpoint. We should get rid of those things that, that could be a temptation. But could Jesus be speaking here in the context of the text, of this question of which one of us is the greatest? Could Jesus be saying you need to get rid of these things that make you want to be the greatest, that pride, that selfishness, then verse 50, verse 50, or verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Be at peace with one another. Folks, if we are striving for greatness, if we care about who gets credit, if we care about who's in charge, 
if we want recognition and we spend a lot of time worrying about getting recognition, if we're, we're bothered that this person is on this team and this person isn't on this team, when multiple people think they are the best, we lose our saltiness. We are no longer witnesses for Jesus because we're no longer thinking about Jesus. We're thinking about ourselves. We've lost our saltiness. And when we act this way, I've, many of you have been in groups and on teams, and I have too, when, when you have too many people, or even just one person, that is always striving for recognition, when you have too many people, or even just one person, that, that always want to make sure that they get credit, when you have too many people, or even just one person, that, that wants to make sure that everyone knows that, that they're in charge, then we fail to, to be salty, but also we begin to not have peace with one another. You guys have been in those workplaces. What does everyone do? It's like Mark in his story said today with those kids. How many of us have been around the people that always want everyone to know that they're great? And what are the people around them? There's no peace. There's no working together. There's no witnessing. In Mark chapter 9, the first 32 verses, we see a picture of what, of who truly is great, Jesus Christ and him and him alone. And then he illustrates to us with the story of a child, with the story of a child, that though he is great, he has become like a servant for you and for I. And then he tells the disciples and he, and he tells us that we are to be like this and he, and he paints this picture to us. Of who is truly great. Those who do the will of God, even the smallest deed. Those who receive a child in the name of Jesus. Those who, who are humble. Those who... who who rid themselves of pride and, and selfishness. Those who are focused not on their greatness, but on being witnesses for Jesus Christ. I pray that each one of us will allow God to, to fashion us and to make us in his image. So that we'll be truly great, not in the eyes of the world. But in the eyes of Jesus, in the eyes of God, because we will look and act and live and talk like Jesus. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will make us, that you will fashion us, that you will mold us into your image. Lord, pride, the striving for greatness is such a dangerous thing. You know that I struggle with it. I'm sure that there's others that struggle with it as well. You know this desire to get credit, the desire to be recognized, is such a dangerous thing within our society. Lord, you know that spiritual arrogance is such a dangerous thing. And I can't speak for other churches, but I know that within our church, it is rearing its ugly head even now. Lord, I pray that we will be humble, that we will recognize that it is you to give greatness unto people. It's not for us to determine, but may we be humble and simply seek to do your will, to be witnesses for you 
in all things. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.